0: So we welcome all of you to, after, uh, during the refreshment time, to go ahead and come up and sign up for one of these classes. Thank you very much. And we have the,
1: the book Shape and um, Tactics, Did you, if you want to check it out and see what it's about. We have the books. Okay, thank you.
0: Awesome, so excited for the lineup for the DTS. And I just, I just want to say, like, Shape is a great class. Um, It stands for, do you guys know what it stands for? For those of you who who took it, S stands for spiritual gifts, you know, figuring out what your spiritual gifts are. H stands for heart. A stands for your abilities. P stands for your personality. And E stands for your experience. So you take all those factors in and and you figure out what God has created you, shaped you for. And, and, And I depending on what your assessment outcome is, you'll be uh, placed in a ministry that fits you, okay? So, awesome. So excited for the upcoming upcoming season, okay? So, we are continuing... Oops, why am I holding this? Okay. We are continuing our Habits of Happiness series, and this week, uh, the title is Happiness Can Be Learned. It can be learned. And this is part five of a, of a nine-part series, and it'll be based on Philippians chapter two, verses 19 to 30. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please take it out, and please take out your handout. And if you don't have a pen or a handout, please raise your hand. Our ushers will come around and pass you a pen. And as I would always like to say, a short pencil is better than a long memory. So be sure to take some notes, okay? All right. So today, we will be studying a very interesting passage, a passage that I like a lot, because it introduces two new characters into our series, and these two folks are Timothy and Epaphroditus, two important people in the Bible, okay? And, and, and they are two models of spiritual servants, as we will see, and, and I really love to study characters, Real people. Real biographies. Why? Because real people, they show us how to put the principles, the precepts, the concepts of the Word of God into practice, into real life. Uh, A scholar once said that example, like being an example, an example is the most powerful rhetoric. Example is the most powerful rhetoric. What is rhetoric? It, It means speech. It means your speaking skills, that no matter how good your your speech or speaking skills are, your example is, is much more powerful, okay? In other words, your actions speak way louder than your words. And as uh, Pastor John MacArthur puts it, he says, the greatest single tool of spiritual leadership is the power of an ex- exemplary life, okay? So... Do you want to be a, a great leader? Then you have to lead by example. And it is true with leadership in the home, with your spouse, with your kids, in schools, with their classmates, and also in, in the workplace with your colleagues. No matter where you are, you have to lead by example if you want them to do something. And so that's what we are seeing here in this passage. So after five weeks of studying Philippians, the Apostle Paul gives us principles for living. But now, now we have a model to follow. And as people, as human beings, we are much better at following a role model than trying to follow a precept or a concept. You know, there's a famous saying, monkey see, monkey do. What a wise and, it must have been a wise sage that said that, monkey see, monkey do. Sometimes we call little kids monkeys, right? And and they'll just do everything that we do, and you can tell them, hey, don't do that. But if they see you do it, they're going to do it, right? My kids see me drink Coke; they're going to drink Coke. Hey, don't drink Coke, but you're drinking Coke. You know, they just want to do it. And it's the same thing, no matter if it's with kids, teenagers, or adults. When we see an example, when we see a role model, it's much easier to follow. Okay, and that's why uh, Timothy. And Epaphroditus, that's why they're here for in this passage, to set an example for us, because they 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 are the kind of like the average Joseph, they're they're everyday ordinary people. So if they can do it, we can do it. So here's the problem. When when we read the scripture, and when we try so hard to be obedient to the principles, we look at the Bible and we try to follow it, but then we see all the sins and weaknesses of our own lives, and we see the failures in our, in our own life, and, and we might say, man, th- this book, it's impossible. You we, we can't follow this. It's impossible. I can't do it. And you see, principles and precepts can only tell us about what we're supposed to do, tell us of our Christian duties, but it can't help us do it. Okay? But role models, role models, especially mentors in your life, people that are discipling you, they can show us that such a duty is possible, and it can be done because it is being done in other people's lives. And, and Remember, um, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about what would Jesus do? Yeah, think, think about what would Jesus do in this situation, right? On one hand, yes, we want to follow that, and that should be our ultimate role model, our goal. And on the other hand, uh, Jesus is not like how we are. He, he's not battling sin and failure and weaknesses. After all, he's 100% God, 100% deity, even in a human body. So, so it's helpful to, to see an average person, an ordinary person who puts the flesh on the principles, who puts life into the precepts so that we can pattern our lives after that. And, and so that is precisely what Paul is doing in these next few verses. And we're, we're in chapter 2, right? And in the previous 16 verses, he gave us precepts on how we should live and how we should live humbly. He said we should not uh, complain. We should live without grumbling. That we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we should not grumble and don't dispute and don't be demanding about your rights. And, And he says we are even to be like Christ. That even though... He is perfect, and we can never be perfect, but he should still be our goal. And so we see that the Apostle Paul, he has set the bar very high for how we're supposed to live. And we ask, man, is this even possible? Is this even possible? So we'll see what Paul says. Okay. Chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So remember the context. The Apostle Paul, he's in chains, in prison, in Rome, and he's writing this letter to the Philippians, the Christians in Philippi. And so Paul is expressing his desire to to send his protege, his spiritual son, Timothy, to Philippi. Why? Why, why Why does Paul want to send Timothy? Well, to check up on the believers in Philippi to see how they are doing, to make sure that that they're well. And so Paul sends his best student out of all the believers. This, Timothy, is his spiritual son because he does everything Paul tells him to do. And they are like-minded and they are one in spirit. So he's a very special young man. And Paul says, there is no one like him. There is no one like him. He's very special. He stands out above the rest. And scholars believe that Timothy, at this time of Paul's writing, is somewhere between the age of 18 and 21. 18 and 21. How many of you are between the age of 18 and 21? Raise your hand. No, you're not. (laughs) 18 and 21. So he is a young man, but he's being... Uh, pointed out by the apostle to be an exemplary person, right? Uh, And and he's not too young, even though he, he might still be a teenager. He's an example to the church. So let's continue on our scripture, verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for for he longs for all of you in this distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy upon him, and not on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So in these few verses, Paul introduces this character named Epaphroditus. Not much is written about him in Scripture except In these verses. And originally Epaphroditus, remember he's from Philippi. He's one of the believers in Philippi that benefited from Paul's gospel preaching. And the Christians there heard that Paul was in prison in Rome. So they decided, man, we got to do something about it. Our our spiritual father is in prison. We got to do something. Let's send a care package. Let's send a financial gift to Paul. Paul. Okay, And they're they're discussing, man, who's going to go? And Epaphroditus is like, I'll go. I'll go. Well, you don't send money with shady people. You send money with people you trust 100%. And they had had Epaphroditus to be their trusted UPS man. He volunteered, and the people trusted him to take the package there, to to take the gifts there. And it was UPS on foot, okay, because there were no UPS trucks. UPS on foot for 800 miles from Greece to Rome. And by the time Epaphroditus walked to Rome, he was already deathly ill. He almost died on the journey. And we know it was a dangerous road with thieves and bandits. But by the mercy of God, he survived. And, and so news traveled back to home that, man, Epaphroditus almost died, almost died. You know, parents, can you imagine if, if your kids went to L.A. Mission with me and you think they're going to be awesome and, and have a good time and one of them, and I call you and I'm like, oh, your, your child's almost dead. You'd be like, what? And you would be worried sick. What happened? What's going on? And so that, that's what's happening with Epaphroditus' family. And they're worried sick about Epaphroditus. okay. And so Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi so he can be reunited with his family who were so worried. And We could see that Paul knew Epaphroditus really well and they were close friends because Paul said if he died, he would have been in deep, deep sorrow. Sorrow upon sorrow. The type of sorrow that makes you weep and cry week after week as if your own sibling, as if your own brother had died. This is grief that, that isn't just for a few minutes. You know, if your acquaintance at work passed away, you might be sad for a few moments, but you didn't know him that well. So it, it's going to pass. But this was a true friend because he said, it would bring sorrow upon sorrow to me if something happened to him. Let's continue. Verse 28. Paul says, Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. So here, there's there's a great example even in Paul. Paul's not thinking about his own needs, Or a helper. Wouldn't it be great if I got a secretary, if I got a helper with me? No, he's not thinking about that. He doesn't want to keep Epaphroditus to make his own life easier. In fact, knowing that the Philippians were worried about him makes Paul have anxiety. Knowing that your family's worried about you, it makes me anxious. So Paul wants to send him back and told the church to honor men like him because he risked his life for him. So in these 11 verses, Paul endorsed these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as a spiritual role model for the Philippians. The Bible doesn't talk about their great giftings. It doesn't talk about how how they were like powerful, anointed evangelists that were able to do great and amazing things. It doesn't say anything like that. So by all accounts, these were ordinary guys. But they lived a faithful servant attitude, and they were role models. And Paul says by sending these two men to to them, it would do three things. Okay, And you can write this down. So that I may be cheered, in verse 19, so that I may be cheered, so that you may be glad, and so that I may have less anxiety. Basically, Paul is saying, If I send them, that would make everyone happy. It would make me happy. It would make you happy. And as your pastor, as the pastor of this congregation, I want you to be happy. I want you to be joyful. I want me to be happy. And I want all of us to have less anxiety. And so we're going to learn from these two men. So what this passage teaches us is that there are four qualities that we have to learn in order for our happiness, our joy to increase for us and also for the people around us. And so the first thing you have to learn is this. Number one, shift the focus away from myself. Shift the focus away from myself. And this is the starting point for all happiness. I must shift the focus away from myself. I have to care about more than just me. And I know we have talked about uh, this point in the past few weeks, but we need to repeat it and it bears repeating because it's so hard to do. I've got to care about the needs of those around me. And if I think that this life is all about me, myself, and I, I'm going to be a pretty miserable person because we'll just keep wanting more and it'll never be enough. And so Paul gives Timothy as an example of this. And in verse 20 to 21, again, he says, I have nobody else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare for everyone else, is looking after their own interest, not that of Jesus. Man, ouch, ouch. At the same time, he's encouraging the church. At the same time, he's he's uh, rebuking people for for not caring about the things of Jesus. And would you say that is true for a lot of people today? That not many people genuinely cares about other people. You know, even in our personal lives. Think about this. Could you name the people? in your life, that are looking after your interests, that they genuinely care about you and put your interests above their own. Besides your parents, besides your family, probably you can count them on in one hand because most people are looking after their own interests, not yours. In other words, Paul is saying that unselfish people, unselfish people are quite rare, And so Paul is saying, learn from Timothy and actually be interested in other people's well-being. Listen to their needs. Listen to their stories. To become more happy, secondly, we need to become someone that people trust. Become somebody that people trust. You're going to have to earn that trust it's obvious that the more that people trust you, the happier you're going to be. And if people don't trust you, you're not going to be very happy. Imagine the five people that are sitting around you right now. How would you feel if none of them trusted you? You feel miserable. Right? How come you don't trust me, you would ask. here's another quality that we learn that we have to learn to be trustworthy. In other words, we have to learn to be reliable. We have to learn to be consistent. We have to learn to be dependable. Paul says, learn from Timothy because I've watched this young man in action. I've seen him in all kinds of circumstances. He's been around preaching with me, ministering with me through the thick and thin, through the shipwrecks, through the prisons. He's been there all along, this young man and he is the real deal. He's authentic. He's genuine. He's trustworthy. And, be, and what you see in him is what you get. He is not two-faced. He does not wear a mask like the King of Hearts skit that, you know, we did. That we, we wore ma- Many people wear masks. He's saying, Timothy, he doesn't do that. He doesn't wear masks. He's dependable. He's reliable. You can count on this young man. I like this picture. He, he looks like that kind of person, huh? What about us? Are, are we reliable people? Does your colleague ever say to your boss, "Oh, no, you can trust this guy. You can give him the keys to open the door to the company, no problem, because he always shows up on time. Or you get this instead. Uh, you can't give him the keys. You don't know if he's going to show up or not. You know, He might call in sick the last minute, and then you see him, at Disneyland on Facebook, you know, like. For example, being on time, punctuality, it's a sign of whether or not you can be trusted. It's a test of character. And you you, you may not think it's, it's a big deal to be late, but just know that people are watching. People are noticing at work, at home, at church, and in any environment, people notice these things. And I like this quote. It says, punctuality is not about being on time. It's basically about respecting your own commitments. It's not just about being on time. But it shows people what you're committed to. Okay? It's not just about the clock. It's so much more than that. And guess what? When companies have to downsize, and these days, a lot of companies are downsizing, right? And guess who, who they're going to cut first? People that can't commit people that can't be trusted with the task, people that never get the keys, they'll be the one that get cut first. And so for for the people who are perpetually late to everything, we've got to ask ourselves why that is. Why are we always late? Because it determines if people can trust you or not. And in order to be trustworthy, we must live with integrity. And what I mean by that is that my actions must match my words. I don't just talk, talk, but I have to walk the walk. And here's the thing. Having integrity doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you're the super virtuous person. It doesn't mean that. Because if perfection was required for integrity, then none of us would have integrity because none of us are perfect. All of us have faults, imperfections, sins that we struggle with. We can pretend we're not struggling, but I know we're all struggling because that's just life. Life is just the good with the bad. And I know we're all struggling in one area or another. We're all flawed. But integrity means what you see is what you get. It's the real deal. And we just make sure that our actions match our words. And in Proverbs 25, it says this. It says, reliable friends who do what they say are like a cool drink in sweltering heat. Refreshing. That's why I have this drink right here. I assume it's non alcoholic. I don't know. I don't drink. <laughs> but it looks delicious. It looks like, man, on a hot summer day, this is what I want. And in the, challenge, in the tough times of life, I want a friend that is reliable, that will do what they say, and they will be like this drink. So we must ask ourselves can people count on us? Are we reliable? Are we credit worthy? If they run a credit check on our past, will they find a good track record? And if we are, then we're going to be happy people. The more people that trust in you, the more happy you're going to be. There's a second way to earn people's trust, and that is this. Keep my promises. Write that down. Keep my promises. In Psalm 15.4, it says this. These people always do what they promise, no matter how much it may cost them. And the psalmist is saying, people with integrity, they do what they promise. They're they're not flip-flops, no matter how much it may cost them. You know, Epaphroditus, I think this is what he looked like, handsome man. He, He promised his church in Philippi, that he would take the financial gifts to the apostle. That is a big responsibility. And he got very sick along the way. He probably started having like stomach aches, flu, dizziness, nausea, probably halfway through, maybe 200 miles in, 300 miles in, I don't know. He could have said to himself, you know what, forget this. I I know I made a promise, but it's too hard. I I feel like I'm not going to make it. I don't feel so good. I'm going to head back home you know what? A lot of people understand that. Yeah, you know what, Epaphroditus, you, you, sh- you should go back home. Because you're not, you're not doing so well. You're not doing so hot. But but what was in his mind? He's saying, no, I'm going to make it all the way. Even even when I'm sick. Even when it's going to hurt. I don't know, what if it was me? I'm thinking, what if I was Epaphroditus? What would I do? I'd probably be thinking, man, I... I think they'll understand if I take some of this money and and stay at a nice hotel and buy some nice herbal foods to heal myself, to take care of myself. I think they'll understand. I'll give myself a week-long vacation. Then we'll see what happens, you know. But Epaphroditus, he didn't do that, right? He made a promise. He kept his promise, even though it almost cost him his life. And even though he, he thought his promise was going to kill him, it ended up being the very thing that gave him honor and respect because God rewards those who keep their promises. So how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? Well, if you're a businessman or merchant, contractor, or if you own a repair shop or any type of business, and you quote your customers a certain price to, to draw their business, you have to intend honor and keep that price. You can't just let that be a tactic. Oh, it's going to be this low price, come, and then when they come in, you up the price on them. That's, that's not being honest. That's not having integrity. You know, don't keep increasing the fees and, and charge hidden costs. And even, the Bible says, even if you have to take a financial loss, keep your promise to your customers. Keep your promise to your customers. I have experienced dishonest car shop people and I hated it. I hated that experience. It was so sour. It charged, charges extra for something that didn't need fixing, something that could last another three to six months, and they say, no, you got you to gotta change it now, because they want to make that few extra thousand dollars, you know. But thank God, thank God that there's, there's Yelp these days, because you can't get away with this honest service these days, because everything gets Yelped, right? If I'm searching uh, online, if I search Yelp for a service and, and someone wrote, someone wrote that you're honest and you keep your promises, then, yeah, I'm going to try, try out your business. If you got 300 ratings and it's all five stars, hopefully you didn't buy those stars. If those were honest stars, then, yeah, I'm going to try out your business. But if you get this, hey, people hate us on Yelp, then, then I'm sorry, we're, we're not going to be visiting your business, okay? Sorry, bud, because, because if, if you have really low ratings on Yelp these days, People are just not going to go to your business, and you might as well close shop because ain't nobody is coming to you anymore, okay? So online surveys like these keep people honest, hopefully. okay. Here's a third skill that we've got to learn in order to be more happy in life. Number three, learn how to work well with others. Learn how to work well with others. And this is a very valuable skill to have in life and in career. Very valuable. I'm talking about the skill to be a team member, a good team member, the skill of collaboration, the skill of working together. And if you don't work well with other people, then you're going to be a very unhappy camper because you're always around other people. You, you know, you, for example, if you're a student, you'll be unhappy if you get put in a group project at school, because you're going to be thinking, man, how come I, I have to do all the work? How come they're just being lazy? They're all talking and, and having fun, but I'm doing all the work. You're going to be unhappy. you got to learn to work well and communicate with other people, or you're always going to find fault about other people, and you're going to isolate yourself. Okay. Well, last week, um, our gospel skit team, yay, gospel skit team, they performed the King of Hearts, right? And it took almost two months for our teams to rehearse all that. And they had to learn how to work well with each other. Because can it get frustrating sometimes when the timing's off, when you're, you don't do your part, then I can't do my part. Because you have to, like, do something to me to, in order for me to do the next thing. You know, it, it can get frustrating in these type of uh, projects. And so they had to learn to cultivate teamwork. And I'm very proud of them for doing so. Yeah, because the performance speaks for itself. They did a great job, right? And so what do I need to learn in order to work well with other people? Well, there's two things that the Bible says. Okay? First, we're going to learn to cooperate. Learn to cooperate. And Paul uses Epaphroditus as an example. In verse 25 it says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother My fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is your messenger, who you sent to take care of my needs. Man, he's my brother, my worker, my fellow soldier. These are high praises from Apostle Paul. He says, he worked and fought side by side with me. He says, this guy knows how to be a team member. He knows how to work in a group. Epaphroditus is not a lone ranger. He's a good team player. And the reality is, the better that you learn the skill, the happier you're going to be in life to be a team player. If you don't know how to work with people different from you, then we're going to be in big trouble because most of the world are going to be different from us. Okay? We may look very much alike in this room, but the minute you walk out into the streets, you'll realize people are very different. And we just have to learn to work with everyone and not isolate ourselves to the world. And Paul uses here in this passage three different uh, relational metaphors. You know, it's family, my brother, my sisters. He's saying, you're my family. The church is the family of God. That means everyone, every one of us is related by the blood of Jesus. You're sitting next to a brother and sister, because they have the same blood flowing through you, the blood of Christ. Then Paul says, we're a fellowship, a fellow worker. We're working together. We're serving together. We've been giving the same task. We have the same great commission. We have the same common goal. Then he says, he's my fellow soldier. And life often feels like a battle, doesn't it? When you agree that sometimes you're at war and that the forces of war, the darkness is against you. And, And Paul says, it's a battle, and we all have the same enemy. And we have to support each other. We need to defend one another. We need to encourage one another. And the best way to do that, guess what? It's called small groups. Small groups. Where do I learn to be a family? Where do I learn to fellowship and to fight for each other? It's in a small group. We support each other. We defend each other. We encourage each other. And in this church, um, for me personally, I, I got a couple of small groups. Uh, I have the Tuesday morning small group with my pastoral staff and, and admin staff. And we don't just talk about admin stuff. We also share our lives and we pray for one another and we help out each other. And also we have our Wednesday night uh, men's group. We also share life with each other and pray for each other. And You know, when, when our family went through the dark season uh, a, a month or two ago, uh, during Christmas time, it, it was the brothers and sisters and these small groups that came to our help, that helped us out, that to help us through our toughest times in life, and, and we couldn't have made it without them. Small group is so important. If you're not involved in a small group, you have to get plugged in. Okay. Second point: we have to be learn to be considerate. Paul says you've got to learn to be thoughtful. You've got to learn to be kind and sympathetic and understanding of other people. And again, he uses Paphroditus as an example in verse 26. He says, but now I must send him back to you because he longs to see all of you and has been worried about your distress since he heard, since you heard that he was sick. Okay. He was so considerate. You know, don't, don't be worried sick about me. I'm going to go back so that you're not worried. He's very considerate, and that's a key to happiness. The more considerate you learn to be to other people, the better of a friend, better of a husband, better of a spouse you will be. And if you're inconsiderate to other people, you're going to live a miserable life. You're going to have a miserable marriage if you're not considerate. Fourth point to be more happy is to live for something that is worth dying for. Live for something that is worth dying for. Unless we have something we're living for, we're just basically coasting, cruising in life. We're not really living. You know, there was a guy that said, I climbed the ladder of success, but when I got to the top, I found out the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Saying that, a lot of times we give big-time commitments to these small-time causes. and We invest our energy and life into the wrong things. So we got to ask ourselves, what are we investing our lives in? Epaphroditus, he, he, he invested his life for the work of Christ. So much so that he would risk his life for it. In my life, I think there's two things I'm willing to die for. Just two. One, I'll gladly lay my life down for my family, for my wife, for my kids. I'll gladly lay my life down with no regret. Two, I'll lay my life down for the gospel because he is worthy. And those are the only two things I will give my life to. How about you? Think about it. What would you give your life for? Today is the first Sunday of February, and therefore we will be taking communion. And, And so as we transition to our time of communion, we are also once again reminded that our Lord Jesus Christ, he was willing to lay his life down for you and for me. He laid his life down for all of us. And so we ought to be willing to also live for him. And that's how much he loves you. He says, you're so worth it that I'm willing to die for you. That's how much he loves you. He died on earth so that he can be with you in heaven. Isn't that amazing? That is truly amazing. And so um, if I can... Have the elders to come and just kind of open up the elements, the bread and the cup. And if you have been baptized, if you are a born-again believer, in a moment you can come up through the middle and grab the elements. Matthew 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. And when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, when you are ready, please come up from the middle aisles and grab the elements and return to your seat. Hold on to the cup and the bread and just pray and reflect upon what Christ has done for us. And let us repent of our sins. Let's have a clear conscience before God. Let's make right before God. Thank you for what you have done on the cross thank you for sacrificing yourself so that we may live so that we may be forgiven so that we may have eternal life right now we confess before you the sins that we have committed in this past week that you would wash us and forgive us of our unrighteousness and put on your robe of righteousness on every person we don't deserve it. It is by your grace and your mercy. Oh, how we love you. now I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we reflect upon the message this morning. Let us sing in response to God. And also I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we also worship in our offering. Let us all stand.
1: I really love the lyrics on the song that we learned today. It's called Resurrecting. Let's just just sing it. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrection of the king is written. By By the spirit I will rise from the ashes of of defeat. defeat. in me, in Your name I come alive to declare Your victory. The resurrected key is resurrecting me. By Your Spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected key is resurrecting me. In Your name, I. Alive to declare your victory. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. Your name, your name. Your name, your name is victory. All oh, praise will rise to Christ our King. Rise, to Christ
0: our King. Right now, um, I would like the ushers to come forward as we pray for the offering and also bless the congregation. Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, and we respond to you that your name is victory. Your name is victory, and we give you all the praise and all the glory. And Holy Spirit, would you do a mighty work in our hearts that we may respond to your word this morning, God, and instruct us on how how we should live. May the amazing love of our Heavenly Father, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may the fellowship of our sweet Holy Spirit be with you always, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Be blessed, be sure to greet one another before you go.